Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Ben Braverman, CCO at Flexport. Welcome, Ben. Thanks, Santosh. By the way, that is an amazing announcer voice. I did not peg you for someone who had that skill. <laughs> I, I I have been accused of, and maybe accusation's a uh, strong word, but I have been told in the office here that when I'm on the phone or I'm doing the podcast, my voice actually changes. So <laughs> it's not no, intentional, no, I, but <laughs> it, it, it it's awesome. It sounds like you're you're calling a college bowl game, but it's it's awesome to be here. Thank you for having me. Obviously, like. You can't invest in supply chain without being a fan of Dynamo. So excited to be here, excited to get to know you better, uh, and thank you. Yeah, yeah, great to have you. And I, I also want to add to that and say big congrats on uh, the round you all pulled the wraps off of uh, last week. And with that, you know, I, I think for many of our listeners, Flexport's a household name, but you know, there are certainly listeners that we add every week who might not be as familiar. So it'd be great to just get the ninety second overview of what you guys are building over there and kind of spreading general awareness of the Flexport story. Yeah, of course. I I will always talk my own book and I'm happy to do it once again here. We are a freight forwarder, a customs broker, uh, increasingly a platform for global trade where some of the largest brands in the world, uh, most of the largest direct consumer brands uh, run their global supply chain. So it's everything from uh, where orders come in to where their factory says, hey, we need to make a booking. We need a, a truck to come to our facility. It's, it's where that, that, that container or that pallet is allocated to an airplane or a container ship. It's, it's where government documents are filed. It's where the export declaration is filed. It's where everything that has to happen to move a large volume of goods. So whether it's you know, 10 containers of, of all birds or, or whether it's an airplane full of Lululemons, it's everything that it takes to move this stuff around the world safely, as inexpensively, as quickly, and as compliantly as possible. And we are like a true full-stack business, meaning that our customer, although they use our software platform and sort of the, the reason people you know, think Flexport is unique is when they log in, they see a map of the world, they see all their trucks and planes and trains moving. More importantly, they see the most accurate data set on where everything is, when it's going to arrive. Uh, they're able to communicate with their team. They're able to share these insights with the rest of their organization. Uh, you know, it really sort of empowers the supply chain team to be elevated in their organization. But we don't actually sell that platform. If you, if you want to get it from Flexport, you've got to be moving stuff with us. And that's not because we're, you know, it's not because we're obstinate or difficult or stupid, I hope. Uh, it's because to actually do a great job with these things, to actually have superior data quality in your platform, we think the right method is just to be responsible for the cargo. And the nice thing is when you add up these, you know, 12, 14, 15, however many services it is we're doing on a given transaction, you're actually generating more revenue than you ever could from a software product. Uh, and that's good for us, obviously, but I think it's also good for the, the customer because we just take all this, all this revenue that ultimately some of it drops to the bottom line and all that goes back into about 100 million a year of R&D on the software platform. So it's this very virtuous cycle of, supporting customers end-to-end moving their goods around the world, 
executing all the services they need, invoicing them for all the services as, as one you know simple bundle, and then investing the proceeds back into the software platform that makes it easier for them to, to run their supply chain and easier for us to, to move the goods. So that, yeah. that sort of is the very high level view of what Flexport does. So, and what's Ben Braverman's story? How did you end up getting into the wonderful world of international logistics and, and equally now having the role of CCO? Yeah, so it's it's so interesting. Like, you know, for those of you who don't know, most of my time now is working on our, our, our various investment vehicles, one being a small accelerator that we're running with, with OnDeck, primarily a, you know, focused on supply chain companies, one being a very traditional strategic investment vehicle where if, if it's sort of one plus one can equal three, and that's why I, I stole that from, from Stripe, which effectively just means in the investment context, if we believe that Flexport and a company that we're investing in can actually help that company grow more quickly as a result of the investment, uh, whether it's by selling to our customers, selling to our suppliers, or just selling to Flexport directly, or, or building something new on top of the Flexport platform. If any of those things are true, maybe we invest as sort of a traditional strategic investor, uh, or we, we have something that's a little less traditional, which is this, this, this opportunistic fund. That's where I spend most of my time today. And I have to be so careful that I don't you know, sort of become an expert. And what I mean by that is, I knew nothing about supply chain when I decided to you know, bet my career and, and, and my, at the time, my life savings on Flexport. I invested in the seed round. I begged Ryan to hire me for a year as I was working on, a, on, another, on another YC company. I'd met him at the dog park and immediately fallen in love with the story he told about an industry that was sort of in need of, of digitalization and, and potentially even some, some rebirth. But ultimately, I was a novice. Uh, and even though I was a novice, I could still tell that this was the opportunity of a lifetime. And I worry a little bit as an investor now that you know, I spent the better part of a decade in, in transportation. I know enough to be dangerous you know, across a few disciplines. I worry that sometimes I'm going to be too, too smart for my own good and just miss out on something that just because I think I know how a part of the industry works and, and you know, may continue to work in the future, that I could be just dead wrong. And so I try to remember, hey, at the beginning of Flexport, we were really learning from first principles how a freight forwarder operated, how a customs brokerage operated. And we, you know, we hired folks from the industry that could teach us a little bit about how to do things well. And, and they certainly had to stay compliant and make sure we were following the letter of the law. But uh, otherwise, we were really figuring it all out on our own from first principles. Uh, and I think it, it gave us this enormous advantage where uh, you know, there, there was a lot of things that people thought were impossible in terms of automation. There was a lot of things that people thought were impossible in terms of customer customer service and NPS, but we just didn't know any better. Uh, and we tried, we, you know, we, we, we tried things that I think folks who maybe knew more about the industry wouldn't have tried. And then so as I as I now in my new role, it says CCO, I think sooner it will change to something that, that, that more accurately reflects what I'm doing now. I think a lot of a lot of what I want to remember is just because someone isn't a domain expert, it may be the next great trucking company it is not built by someone who knows anything about trucking. It yep. may be the next great insurance company is built by someone who knows nothing about insurance, or it may be that you know that we're we're further we're further along in the development of our of our industry, and it is going to be experts that come in and, and nail the next set of problems. But yeah, it, it, I, I started to Flexport, you know, to answer your original question, all you know, eight years ago, leading sales and marketing, and about uh, a year and a half ago, uh, a guy named Will Urban, who is awesome, uh, who I, I'd actually been working with as a consultant, sort of at the in the end of my CRO era. Uh, just to try to level up and understand, okay, what are the biggest customers in the world need from us? And eventually, he just came in and, and did that job full time. A, lo a lot of what I've done in the last eighteen months is, you know, transition those relationships, 
make sure that all the customers that I that I used to be so either directly responsible for day to day were you know making sure that they were still feeling the love, uh, and then figured out what to build next. Um, and what we've built is, like I said, the the investment vehicles, and then a, a really cool project called Flexport Flow that integrates Flexport more tightly with a bunch of the three PLs in the U.S. Yeah. So you know, it, it, it's interesting, right? You, well, you're in this transition, and and part of this transition is you're becoming the face for Flexport as startups now turn to Flexport as kind of this you know grown up venture backed business that that they all aspire to to also be on the same level of. You're, you're kind of going back and reminding yourself as to hey like. Flexport's what it is today, not because we act, you know, we were experts or knew about this industry, but it's because we we're exposed to parts of the industry. And we had just enough context to be dangerous and to rethink why certain things happen. And and I think that's absolutely the common thread when you look at some of the standouts in our own portfolio. You know, Sean at store, it's not that he has this like rich background in warehousing distribution, but he's exposed to it enough that he starts to rethink it. The guys out in Berlin at, at, at Sender, very similar story as well. So, so, so can definitely relate. But I, I want to move along here, Ben, and I, I love your take on the industry. Uh, I, I think Flexport over the last several months has certainly been in the headlines with commentary, increasing amounts of data and granularity around the state of you know global international supply chains. And I'd love to kind of get a pulse of that market from you here while I have you for a sec. Yeah, I mean, the markets continue to surge, whether it's air or ocean, we continue to see, like, you know, as, as an example, the charter rates for an ocean vessel right now, I'm told roughly what it would cost you on a, on a day rate. So you're effectively leasing a vessel. Uh, it's called a day rate, but you, you do it by month, obviously, because, you know, leasing something by, by day would be nonsensical in this industry. But if you're leasing something at the day rate, the rate is so high that you could effectively have acquired the vessel with what you're paying in the course of one year. Because that just gives you a sense of how, how, how high these markets mm-hmm. are right now. And obviously, folks wouldn't be, wouldn't be paying these charter rates if they didn't think they could then turn around and, and, and pass, the, pass those costs on to the, onto the shippers. So you know, we're still living through really trying times. We're still living through a market environment that favors large companies with deep balance sheets. And I think we're going to continue to see you know, more and more integration and more and more of an asset play going on where folks just have to commit to longer term partnerships with the asset owners to make sure they can serve customers. And I think it's going to be harder and harder for whether it's smaller shippers or smaller forwarders. I, I do think that these conditions favor folks that have deeper balance sheets. You, know, you can look at the fundraiser we just executed uh, and, and can take some bets on, on assets uh, and commitments with partners who, who have assets that are, that are highly valuable in this, in this environment. Because um, we, we don't see signs of the congestion easing um, anytime soon. And, and who knows, maybe we'll all be surprised in Christmas 2022, you know, the things are back to normal at the ports. But so far, uh, you know, Flexport, we, we have this index where we, we actually track how long it takes goods to go from, from factory to where they're, their destination you, you can't you can't goof with this metric the same way you can like the number of ships at port. You know, obviously, if you, if you want to get rid of the, the, the number of ships off the port, you have them sit further out to ocean. Then you can't count them anymore. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in, 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 yeah. In, in our case, we're actually measuring how long it takes goods to go from point A to point B, and we're still seeing the numbers going up. It's still taking longer from the time a factory 
in Asia says, hey, goods ready for pickup to the time they arrive at their destination than they were in 20, even in 2021, which was already a brutal year. So it may be that there, you know, there, I, there's something I'm missing and, 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 and some of these investments that we're making in, in capacity are going are gonna to come back to bite us. But right now, it looks like the, the conditions aren't, aren't changing anytime soon. So with that, it's it's interesting you brought up assets here, and I think as as we have observed the supply chain evolve through COVID, I, I do think we are in agreement that as companies hit certain proof points of growth and scale, it's not about being asset light or not. It's about like what is the right exposure to assets, and in some industries, some business models. We're talking about physicality here. So you, you need to own assets or need to have some exposure, whether it's like capacity availability or frankly, like in warehousing, we've also seen service levels and being able to have enough control of the environment and the actions taken in order to ensure you're not goofing it up and upsetting you know, your largest enterprise customer. So definitely in agreement there. Is there any sense from, from your vantage point, like just technology adoption as you're thinking about the forwarding market here? Yeah, I mean, we're, we're seeing, first of all, there's a bunch of cool companies being founded that are building tech to serve forwarders. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised it took this long. I, it feels like a pretty obvious idea that if Flexport is the sort of doing interesting things and you, and you want to build a new business, a lot of folks tried to build businesses that sort of went head on with us. Um, and at least in, in, in the U.S. market and a lot of other markets, I, I think, you know, you're finding that wasn't the right approach. And the better approach is there's already a ton of forwarders in the market. Some of them are quite good, right? I mean, not, not just because Flexport has done well doesn't, doesn't mean we don't, we don't respect our, our competitors. Some of the folks in the market today, they employ smart people. They run good businesses. They've just been hamstrung by legacy tech. I know that's not the case for all of them. I mean, you know, some of these companies, I think, are going to struggle in the coming generation. But there are good ones. And those companies need better tech to buy, uh, both to run their businesses internally and probably even more importantly, you know, to make sure their customers have a great UI. Um, they have a great UI to experience the service. And I think we're seeing more and more companies being founded now that are building tech for forwarders rather than trying to be full stack in the way Flexport was. And I mean, even if the total opportunity may be technically smaller, I think that right now, that's the opportunity I would focus on if I were a founder. I just think there's so many big forwarders, all of whom are printing, you know, unprecedented amounts of money right now. They all have budget to invest in tech. And I mean, maybe I'm saying something against my own interest as a Flexport shareholder, but I do think you're going to see a number of interesting companies founded in that space, just you know, try, trying to arm the rebels against uh, against Flexport, so to speak. Sure. And, and you know, I, I think you're also being intellectually honest in the sense that you're talking about a massive market and you can have several businesses that have you know, high valuations, strong growth, but kind of relatively low levels of penetration. And I think that's one of the great things about the industry we're in. There's to kind of some ways to skin a cat, so to speak. Well, you, you, you mentioned Sean at store. It's a great example of, you know, who would have thought yet another fulfillment aggregation play would be what the market needed but it turns out, A, this market is so big that, yes, the market actually wanted another one. And that the market is so big that there was room for someone like Sean to be creative and build this new hybrid model and hybrid service model that, that seems to really be delighting people. Yeah, it's interesting that so many people can succeed. There's very few markets that it feels like 
yeah, there could be five to ten winners in a category, and there's still opportunity. I mean, that's that's the story of the forwarding market, certainly. Yeah, I did, I did a call this morning, you know, a, a, I guess like, you know, I guess it's called a podcast with Jin, the CEO of True North. Yeah. And you know, she's building an incredible business, as you know. There are a couple of, there are a couple of competitors in the space. If you look at them, they're all growing like gangbusters. Like the, the the truth is, the category is just so ripe, and the, and the market is so supply constrained that I think anybody who helps truck drivers and owner operators make more money and live better lives in the coming ten years, I think there's room for fifty companies to come in and. And maybe not have the success that, that True North or Cloud Trucks or some of the other folks have had, um, but to own other parts of the experience and build enormous businesses because because the markets are just so darn big. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, in another aspect, and and we share this investment as well in in Chorus, right? Is as you're seeing these businesses merge with technology woven through them or a technology first problem solving motion weave through them. You know things like visibility. What what Martin, of course, is looking to build comes to realization that this is a massive opportunity. And yeah, there's something to be had here because it's not quite baked out or, or, or fully baked out market. So it, it's still early innings. I, I think we'd both agree as it comes to supply chain technology. But I'm going to move along here in our conversation, and I'd like to kind of delve into the evolution of sales and the sales organization at Flexport. And you mentioned now you're you're transitioning out, you're spending more time on the investing side, but you've certainly been in this front row seat as to kind of how it started day 1 and you know got to where it is today. But you know how, how did it start? Where are we practically today in in terms of kind of headcount, motion, and I would love to use that as a jumping point to some other perhaps questions that that could elicit some wisdom from you here. Yeah, of course. I, I, I tell founders when we're investing, uh, there's a lot of folks in Flexport that can teach you a lot of things. I specifically am good at go to market. If you want to learn about anything else, you should probably ask me for an intro elsewhere. But yeah, go, go to market. I'm always happy to talk about. So with that, you know, how, how did it start when, when you showed up, when, when Ryan said, sure, you're, you're in, what were you staring at? How many people? What were the problems? What was that? What was the early days? Yeah, it was, you know, it was five or six people. Ryan had done something almost impossible in retrospect, which was get a customs brokerage license. And he, he'd actually acquired a brokerage in Houston. And in the process of acquiring that brokerage, he transferred the license into this new entity that became Flexport. And we were, at that point, we were only able to operate as a customs broker, which for those of you who are not, not from the industry, that means we couldn't actually sell you the transportation. Our, our, our ability was to help you clear the U.S. border, pay your duties, make sure you're behaving compliantly, and potentially then also uh, contact a trucker to pick up once the goods are, are, are tendered at the port. But we were not able to actually do the ocean freight yet. And what, what Ryan had figured out was, you know, at that point, this was, you know, early 2010s. Ryan had observed there's this explosion of Amazon sellers. And, you know, there, there's still a lot of controversy over the exact numbers. But, you know, we estimate there's a million Amazon sellers doing over a million dollars a year in sales. A huge percentage of those folks are importers. And what Ryan had figured out was a lot of them were having problems with customs meaning their factory would ship something. Uh, their factory had told them, oh, no problem. We know how to get this into Amazon FBA for you. 
you know, we'll just, we'll take care of it. Just, just, you know, pay us for, pay us for the goods and the transportation. And the factory was able to get the goods picked up. They were able to get them loaded on a vessel. You know, these were simpler times when getting on a vessel didn't require, you know, promises of, of your firstborn. But they were able to get the goods moving. What they were not able to do was correctly clear customs in the U.S. They did not have a customs brokerage license, obviously. They did not, the, the partner they had used that booked the sailing, you know, typically ex-China or, or out, of, out of India, um, did not have a customs brokerage license. And, and they would find someone like Flexport by doing a Google search that said, hey, goods stuck at, uh, at Port of Long Beach or goods stuck at Port of Newark or how do I get goods into FBA? And they would see a Flexport ad and they would click it. And so this, when, I, when I joined, a lot of the times when someone clicked that ad, their call phone number that went to Ryan's cell phone. And I, I, you know, he was personally onboarding these folks, helping them get a customs bond, passing them to our customs brokers. Because at that point, two of the five people on the team were customs brokers. They were people who were licensed to do this work of, of clearing, clearing the U.S. border. Um, and that's what I came into. There was effectively no sales motion. Uh, and, and even more worrying, the transaction sizes were very small. So you, you probably know this, but for the folks listening, you may not. A customs clearance costs about 100 bucks. And if you have just raised venture capital and told the world that you're going to build, you know, one of the, you know, a generational logistics company, it's very hard to do $99 at a time. And we, we were charging $99 for a customs clearance. Um, and we were charging a couple hundred dollars for a, for a customs bond. But it was, it was obvious this was going to be a long way to build a business. And what we were finding was customers weren't recurring. Once they, once they had solved their problem, Generally, you know, one, these were really small customers, so maybe they didn't have another shipment for six months. But even more worrying, generally, they would, you know, because you couldn't be the beginning of their transaction, you know, the beginning of the transaction is having the goods picked up at the factory and shipped. Because we weren't involved there, it just felt like even if we did a great job for someone, the chances that they were to go ask someone else to ship something the next time they had it were too high. And so I, you know, I went to Ryan. And I implored him that we, that we accelerate the process of becoming a freight forwarder and getting our, our NVOCC license, which is a you know, license that allows you to, to buy and sell ocean freight legally. Yep. Uh, and there's a, there's a lot of rules associated with, with how you price ocean freight and how you present those prices. He agreed. He, he, you know, he worked another miracle. We were able to get it approved. Luckily, Ryan has lived a squeaky clean, exemplary life. Uh, so he passed the FBI background check yet again, and we, we were able to operate it. Yeah, all, all this stuff is federally regulated. They're, yeah, they're not messing around. Our, our regulators have guns. Uh, That's you, right. You really want to follow? Yeah, you really want to follow the rules in this industry. Ryan managed to pull it off, get the NBCC license, and that was really the moment where everything changed. Where we were able to call people with this value prop, and again, like we were so lucky that the market dynamic was. If you were expeditors or Kuninagel or any of these sort of elite legacy, you know, hundred year old, massively profitable freight forwarders, you didn't have time to serve an Amazon FBA importer. You certainly didn't have time to teach them how to do international shipping. You know, you're, you're too busy moving goods for the biggest companies in the world at you know, billions of dollars a year in, in, in top line revenue. You, you just can't be in this business too. And so Flexport was very fortunate we had basically a wide open market and we had a customer that was experiencing a ton of pain, but there was a lot of first time importers. There was this surge of venture capital going into hardware. 
So like this is when you know wearables were huge. This is when a lot of the home security systems were, were, were really popular. You know, Ring.com was one of Flexport's early Halo customers. There was all this money going into direct-to-consumer brands. So you had all these first-time importers who just needed an easy button, who just needed a Flexport to come along and say, hey, we exist, we are licensed to operate, and we're going to own this problem for you. Uh, in the early days of Flexport, that's what we were selling. Like, we hadn't built any tech yet because how could you? You know, we, we raised the money from Google Ventures and a few other folks early, and effectively, like, we were selling within a few months. So if you're in market a few months after you raise the money, you can't have built that much tech. But what our customer needed wasn't necessarily tech in the early days. It was just a partner who could own this problem. And that was what really we built the brand on. And I think even if you look at Flexport today, again, how we, you know, now the tables have turned and now we have the same problem that our competitors used to have, which is, you know, we serve some of these really big companies. And yeah. we have these, you know, you know, $50 million a year annual relationships where a lot of the resources go on our side. And I think there's probably an opportunity to attack Flexport in the long tail, where it's just, you know, it's harder and harder for us to resource. But there's this, this same mentality of just like owning the problem. And really, like, that's how we ended up deciding to give away the platform and make the Flexport interface free and not be a piece of software that you had to buy. We just saw it as, look, if we own this problem for you and you're going to pay us to do all these services along the way, then we owe it to you to give you a wonderful place to work where you have good data and you can search by SKU and everything kind of works well and as you'd expect. Our, our ethos, like, is always, look, we're, we're going we're to own this problem it, it, it worked when we were selling into, you know, one-person companies all the way up to the, the Fortune 100. Uh, and I think a lot, of, a lot of our ethos really is pretty unchanged. So, you know, uh, how have the kind of sales and CS organizations from that, you know, five-person to Series A and now through to your Series E, how has that changed through the scaling process? Because that's something we see both founders in our portfolio as well as outside of our portfolio just kind of, I wouldn't say struggle with, but it's a meaningful point of friction in terms of growing up and understanding what grown up means. Yeah, I think growing up in, in the context of a, a company that grows really fast, to your point, is really just about you're going to reorg every 12 to 18 months. And there's, there's no getting around it. What, what works at one level of scale and one level of knowledge is just not going to work at the next level. And I think that the, the one thing we've done consistently pretty well is been okay with evolving the model. So, you know, we've had times at Flexport where we were doing really tight handoffs between sales and account management. And then over time, as we serve bigger and bigger companies, we realized, you know, you really can't do that. You, you kind of need sales Sales people that are attached to an account for life or you know the equivalent of for life that are working in partnership with an account manager. Because that account manager, they're responsible for a global supply chain. They're responsible for an enormous amount of actual work that has to get done. They're responsible for presenting this data beautifully in a QBR every quarter. They can't also be the person that, that has the commercial responsibility. And so that was a big evolution. We, you know, we, we've had times where labor was totally decentralized. Like if you look at the early days of Flexport, every single squad, every, you know, for us, a squad is a seller, an account manager, a bunch of operations people that are, that are you know, doing, doing, kind of doing legwork, and then maybe a customs broker. Every squad was their own unique snowflake. And, you know, we got to a point where there was 50 squads at Flexport and there was 50 ways to move a shipment. Uh, 
And that was a really hard time to build great technology because you know, you're never going to make 50 squads happy. Even if you build the greatest piece of software in the world, if three of those teams have a different workflow, you're, everybody's, you know, you're going to have three teams that tell you the new, the new tech doesn't work. Mm. So I think one of the things we had to do was get way more comfortable with the idea that our customer could still experience a lot of local account management, but that more and more of the labor could be centralized. Um, and I, I think like the, the trick for Flexport in the coming call it 12 to 24 months is, can we keep centralizing sort of the rote labor, you know, the stuff that happens over and over and over again, and, and frankly doesn't require a ton of creativity. Can we standardize and centralize that in a way that it's still, it's still a fun job. It's still a joyful job. You don't hate working at Flexport. Can we standardize that in places where frankly, maybe the costs are a little bit lower? And then can we still keep the customer experience like it is today, which is you're dealing with people in your time zone, in your town, that know your book of business really deeply, but that maybe aren't responsible for doing quite as much button pushing or document uploading. And like, you know, you know, I think one of the things that you and I have talked about before is there's some things you can automate in global logistics and then some things you can't. Like when there's loss, when there's damage, when there's a flood, um, there's going to be humans involved that have to make judgment calls about what happens. You're never going to automate every workflow. So a lot of what Flexport is trying to do now is figure out, okay, what, where does labor get centralized? Where does labor get tools made that makes their jobs a lot easier and more enjoyable? And where can we automate it altogether? And I think how do you, how do you organize for this period is one of the great challenges of, of building, building a late-stage company. Because like the stuff that worked when you're 200 people and you're in four offices, it doesn't work when you're 3,000 people in 30 offices. And it certainly won't work when you're 10,000 people in 100 offices. So yeah, I, I think the number one thing is we, we one of our one of our uh, one of our values has always been embrace change. And I think we, we will continue embracing change. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So one founder actually punted this question to me around multi-product line sales, and you know they have a, a business where there's four, five, six different things that can be sold, and you know how one kind of approaches training, quota attainment. Have you seen this? Do you face it? How might you kind of put forth the framework to problem solve this? Yes, yeah, so I, I won't claim that we have the perfect solution, but I will share what we've done. So there's really two ways you can do this. You can either have product experts that partner with a salesperson and account manager, or you can have 15 different salespeople slash account managers. And different companies have decided different things over the years. Like if you look back at sort of like the old school software businesses, they chose a model where each product had its own sales organization. And you as the customer to buy, you know, three different products from like a 1990s version of Oracle, you would work with three totally different organizations in some cases. Um, I, that we, we chose not to build that way. We, what we figured out was like, our job is to be this single source of truth. Our job is for our account teams to, to be the human embodiment of a single source of truth, where if you ask them a question, they always know what's going on with your business. Um, they know what, you know, they, they, and therefore they also kind of know what to sell you because if they know your business that deeply, they, they know what you need. And so we, we chose for a model where seller and account manager, and right now I'm speaking in global key accounts, which is uh, led by a woman named Julie Harris, Amazing. Uh, a lot of this was is, is her working with the the functional leaders of Flexport to figure this out. If you're a key account sales leader on, on Julie's team, you have a book of business, 
let's say your book of business is, you know, Tesla and Home Depot, hypothetically. Your book of business, you, you are responsible for everything Flexboard does or says with that customer. You are where the buck stops. If, if that customer ever feels like something is imperfect in their relationship with Flexboard, they call that, that sales leader is assigned to that account. Um, the, that sales leader, though, they could never know everything that, that a Tesla or a Home Depot or a company of this incredible sophistication is going to need to know. They're going to have to rely on Flexport's global tax team, Flexport's global customs team, Flexport's air freight leaders, ocean freight leaders. There's all these people they need to deliver their service well. And so what we've done is we, we've put people on those teams who have a quota. Effectively, they are bonused by supporting our salespeople in these accounts. And, and if you're, if, if you're, if you know, if you're Angel Rodriguez, one of, one of our, our amazing sellers in, in Julie's organization, who manages some of the, the biggest accounts in, in, Flexport's, in Flexport's orbit, if you're Angel and you know you have a meeting with one of your clients coming up and you know they want to talk about, you know, global tax optimization, you're going to, in advance of that meeting, go to the, go to the Flexport tax organization, you know, for, for, for one of Angel's clients, which are, you know, at the scale, uh, you know, as, as big as it gets, you know, most likely the person who leads global tax will come to the meeting with Angel. They'll go through with the client all the, all the options under the sun. Um, Angel is the quarterback. He's the one who knew who to call in. He's the one who knew the client had the need. Um, he's the one who knew who at Flexport was the exact right fit to solve that need. And ultimately, he's responsible for making sure that Flexport delivers on whatever we promised in that meeting. But he is not a global tax expert. Like we are not saying angel, Hey, go, go take night classes and get a, get a JD in global tax. His job is to be the quarterback. It's not to be an expert in everything. Although in angel's case, he, he may be, most people can never be. They, they're always going to need that support from those domain experts. And, and the number one thing that we figured out was if you design the incentive structure so that you're never splitting the baby, you know, it, it never feels like by calling in a domain expert, you, one of our sellers is going to make less money or by, by the other token, one of our domain experts can never earn more quota credit by selling something on their own. You know, they, they always benefit the most by just working together and understanding an opportunity and, and just working in, in, in concert. That model has worked really well for us. Um, there's a gentleman named Robin Corlett who, who leads it on the ocean team. There's, there's a few folks on the air team who, who serve this function, but effectively it's like, you know, the, the, the quarterback is able to call in whatever resources they need and the customer then gets everything they, everything they want and need, but they never have to ask, like, oh, who's responsible for this? Like, if I don't get what I need from Flexport, where do I go? Do I go to the product team or do I go to my account team? They know, like, no, no, my account team is responsible no matter what. Yeah. So kind of shifting uh, gears a little bit around uh, expansion, is there a kind of approach that you have, approaches perhaps you've also seen around kind of the post land winning a customer and then the account expansion? Like who's responsible? Are there certain tactics? Are there incentives and comp considerations? Yep. So we have a totally different worldview at the bottom of our, of our market versus the top of the market. At the bottom of the market, we believe in a pretty tight handoff, and we believe that most of expansion will come from doing two things. Number one, delivering an impeccable service and keeping the prices low. And number two, consistently asking for business if we're not getting it when we expect. In, in a context where a customer is going to ship, call it five to 20 times a year, there's no need to overinvest in a quote unquote sales motion. 
most of your sales motion is getting the customer in the door in the first place uh, and getting them on board the Flexboard, getting their first few quotes processed through the system, getting them to book and experience our service, and then getting them assigned to an accounts team. Um, it's a really tight handoff uh, where our sellers and SMB, once an account is onboarded, you know, they're really able to focus primarily on new account acquisition. Upmarket, you know, the, the, if I'm talking, we're talking about Angel Rodriguez again, in Angel's world, you know, he is, he is partnered so tightly with the account team and, and, they, are, and they are compensated in partnership. Uh, and so effectively, it, it, it's very similar to the, to the way we think about bringing in a product line, a product line specialist. We want to make sure that it's always win-win. That if, that if Angel and one of his account teams, and you know, I think Angel's, Angel's book is so big, there are multiple account managers that are partnered with him. But if, if he wants to, if, if he's going to sell something, he knows he'll never sell anything without the support of one of those account leaders because they're the ones that actually have to deliver the service that he sold. So they together are responsible for the expansion. Um, they together are, are, you know, they're, they're really compensated in a way that's, that's very consistent with, with how each other want to be compensated. And they're going to they're going to win or, or they're going to lose together as, as a sale, as a seller and account leader. The number one thing that you have to remember is if you're a sales leader and you have these sales, whether it has a lot of product lines or you have a sale that has a lot of expansion, is you just never want it to feel like the pie is limited. One of the pieces of advice that we got early on, which I'm so glad we we mostly followed, is the more folks that are supporting a deal just increase the pool that goes to bonus. As long as, as long as the deal is due to an economic positive, it's still profitable for the company. If there are a lot of folks required to sell and serve something well, increase the bonus pool, make sure that everybody wins. Never have it feel like you have to make the decision between do we assign the resource or, or you know, which, which might actually serve the customer really well, but it might reduce our bonus. If that's ever a consideration your teams are having to make, it means you, you, that something is sort of wonky in your incentive structure. It should always be, hey, if I do the thing that serves the customer the best, I'm going to make the most money, and I know that. Mm, I love that. I love that customer centricity, and it, it's it's so true. And it, incentives ultimately drive behavior, and 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 that's really the kind of underlying lesson behind that advice. But Ben, you know, I, I want to kind of move in and wrap up here, but give our, our audience a, a little more of your personal side. And I'm going to kind of get into this kind of rapid fire, if you would, where kind of 10, 15 second answers to three different statements or, or questions. And with that, I'm going to start off with what's your favorite book? My favorite book is probably Zen in the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance. Okay. Because I read it, I, I read it at a very impressionable moment where the lesson I needed was that like the journey is the destination kind of thing. You know, I was so obsessed with outcomes as a kid and obsessed with getting to a certain place or achieving a certain thing or status, whatever you want to call it, uh, that I wasn't enjoying anything. And the whole purpose, the whole point of that book is just like, no, no, like there, there is a certain zen in, in, in maintaining this motorcycle. There is a certain joy in like hearing the engine run. Yep. And applying that to my own life, I think it has made it a lot more enjoyable. And I can't say that in that every book. And the book I'm reading right now, and I also recommend everybody, is, is Cable Cowboys of, of the U.S. cable system, which really, they, they were cowboys. These are people who were operating largely in defiance of, of local regulations when they built these cable networks. Uh, it's a pretty amazing story. Next up, your most important daily habit. My most important daily habit. So I, a friend of mine named Ian Ron Caroni, uh, who, who kind of looks like Hercules, shout out to Ian Ron Caroni and Hercules, sent me this email about five years ago 
that had like his way to live. And it's a way to live that's like, it's nutrition, it's a mindset, but also it's like a very hardcore, uh, you know, push, pull legs uh, workout routine that I started doing in the, during COVID. So I'd had this email in my inbox for three years. About 18 months ago, I started like religiously doing this workout. And like much to my dismay, I still do not look like Ian Ron Peroni, but it has made my life a lot better. And finally, what is the thing you believe in or believe in general that most people would disagree with? Man, I, I, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about what other people think. Um, um, what is the one thing I believe most would disagree with? I think that my, that my most unpopular belief is probably that luck and destiny play a much greater role in our outcomes than any of us uh, would care to admit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I met Ryan at the dog park. I literally met him because my dog had to take a shit one day. And I saw this guy across the dog park. And for whatever reason, I had some inclination to go talk to him. I don't approach strange men at the dog park very often. <laughs> I, I, I don't think I've made another adult male friend since. But for some reason, I was like, I have got to be friends with this human right now. And I'll never be able to explain that, really. And I, so I just have to be super grateful. And I, I think the only thing I believe is there's, there's more destiny at play in our lives than we, than we care to admit. And I, I'm, I'm trying to embrace that. That's awesome. Well, with that, Ben, you dropped quite a bit of knowledge on us. Appreciate you uh, spending the time here and equally look forward to seeing uh, some more of the investments you and the team are making out of that new fund. Cheers. Yeah. Yeah, Santosh, uh, please invite me into more of your deals. You guys are amazing, and I look forward to sleeping on your couch in Chattanooga. <laughs> Always welcome. <laughs> Always welcome. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. And be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.